Welcome to Band Meets Strengths, a podcast exploring the string classroom. I'm Patrick Dandria. And I'm Tiffany Oponicelli, and we're both music educators in the California Bay Area. I teach high school string orchestra and symphony orchestra. And I teach middle school band, jazz, and orchestra. We're not experts, but we're here to share and reflect on the challenges, successes, and everything in between in our own classrooms. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to send us an email at bandmeetsstrings at gmail.com. If you're enjoying what you're hearing or if this podcast is helpful to you, it helps us a lot if you write us a review or give us a rating in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to podcasts. It makes it easier for us to reach more listeners. Happy Saturday, Tiffany. Happy Saturday, Pat. How you doing? Oh, you know, it is mid to late October, October 21st, and uh, I'm doing all right. We are done with the first quarter. We are heading into the second quarter. December is basically around the corner. That's how I'm feeling. On we go. How about you? Uh, I'm doing great. I am at home on this Saturday, but I see that you are wearing a gun high school shirt and look like (laughs) you are at school. We have a gig uh, in the late morning today, and so we are going to perform at the Stanford Mall shortly. (laughs) A nice mall performance. Well, hopefully that will be fun and uh, good for you for giving up your Saturday for a cool event like that. Well, we're going to start with our check-ins. I'll go first. We are just a little more than two weeks past our fall concert, which happened at the beginning of this month. And that included all three of our audition ensembles and in the string classes that it's our string orchestra, our top group. And the concert I was just really, really thrilled with. I thought the kids performed great. It was an awesome energy in the room. I still am trying to harness what the gymnasium can be in terms of like a proper performance venue. So it feels a little less like a rally and a little more like a concert. Um, but I thought that there was a, a nice medium between those two things. And I'm, I'm trying to lean in a little bit into some of the enthusiasm that the kids have in that space. But musically, I was really, really excited with what the kids did. Many, many things that, of course, you know, felt different in that space. But overall, I just was so excited with how the kids sounded. They felt really confident in their music making. I thought that the maturity of the sound, you know, this is my third year at the school, and it's hard to compare year to year for many reasons. But I am hearing some of the best sounds that I've heard in the month of October so far, and that's really, really exciting. There were a lot of cool parts about the night, but one of my favorite was that we had some students that were announcing all of the pieces throughout the event. So I did a little bit of talking at the beginning of the event just to welcome people and add some transition points and to give some thank yous. But mostly it was the students' voices and the student sounds that were being heard. And I've done that in the past, but it's been a while. And I enjoyed so much about that. I loved getting to hear the kids speak. It just was wonderful to hear them talk. They wrote all their own speeches. Yeah, I was going to ask you if they, did you give them guidelines at all? I I did and I didn't. You know, I was I was planning honestly that I would write something for them eventually. But the way I did it was I created a a, a video assignment like a flip or Flipgrid formerly mm, Flipgrid nice. assignment. I can't call it Flip, even though it is called Flip. Did they change their name? I didn't know that. They did. I don't know. Oh. I still call it Flipgrid. So we created an assignment. <laughs> I created an assignment and just said for any students that were interested to create a short video. I think I capped the video at like ninety seconds, with the goal of hopefully that being the longest their speech would be. And I just said for them to share their name and their grade and what instrument they played, you know, just an introduction of who they were and then why they wanted to speak about one of the pieces. So something that was just a little bit personal to them. And what they ended up doing was kind of running with that. And they all honestly gave like a really fleshed out proper introduction to the music that was about to be heard and made that connection of why for them 
you know, they just, they talked about something about the process. And I think that is really exciting to share at a concert because the, the parents don't get to see you or hear the process. They just get to hear the music that's there. Yeah. So I plan on editing that. I mean, if, if I, when I do this again, I probably will give a little more feedback about some length because there are probably a few that were like, a few sentences longer than they needed to be. Mm -hmm. And the middle school students love to use a complex vocabulary when it is not necessary. <laughs> so, I love that about them. Yeah, there was some very florid language. Um, <laughs> but I mean, honestly, it just was really great. And personally, I forgot what it feels like to not have to be on 100% of the time at the concert and to be able to step to the side and yeah. Isn't it great to have a second right before? Oh my gosh. I know, it, it's incredible. It really felt different and it felt like I was, yeah, I just got to be more a part of the experience in a different way. So I really enjoyed it. And especially middle school parents want to hear their kids talk, right? Like they, totally. and like a middle school kid more than a high school kid really wants to feel seen in that way of like, look at me talking. Yes. And what a great way to highlight also kids who maybe aren't sitting in the first row for whatever reason. And I think in most of the groups, it was kids that were sitting all over the ensemble, mm -hmm. um, which I really, really loved. I just was really proud and excited. And I don't know, it just made me very excited in a different way to hear my students talk about their musical experience and not just for me to provide their parents with what I think they're getting. I feel like I've done two versions of it. One version with student announcers where I um, give them total freedom to say whatever they want. And then also one version that I've done in a pinch with middle school where I have given them basically a, a half sheet that says like, here's exactly what to say. And then leaving one line like, I've loved working on this piece because blank. And then that's like a quick way to get to it. Um, but same thing, I try to prioritize doing that because it gives me that little break right before they play. I really liked it. I'll definitely do it again in December. And I think it'll probably be a happy medium between the version that we did and what you just described, which is just giving them a little clearer structure mm -hmm. and then also giving them some personalization. Yeah. That's all for me. Us, we had a fun Kaleidoscope concert. That concert was a multidiscipline concert that I had mentioned before. Our kids did everything from playing Zephyr by Karen Neidhold with a drum set to we had a small group play a Mendelssohn string symphony movement on stage. And then we also had our chamber orchestra with our cellos strapped up walking around playing Billie Eilish's bad guy. So it was just a super fun concert. We had last week a composer visit with composer Dion Morales. He is someone who we came across last year through our Midwest set. He was one of the arrangers of one of the pieces we played at Midwest and we had been in contact and he is doing a year of free commissions for people. And so he included us in that project and wrote us a piece called Danza de la Resistencia. We're super excited about it. Um, our two string orchestras get to premiere that, which is um, our not our like top auditioned group. And so I think it's really special for them to have this special project um, that they get to play as the world premiere next week at our concert. And also what a fantastic experience all the time for any student to get to work with a living composer, but specifically a living composer who was sharing so much of his own self and personality through the piece. It's a piece based on his own Puerto Rican heritage using bomba sica rhythms, which is a type of dance. Uh, and he taught us all about it. And he uh, was so excited just to be here. It was really great. He also came, uh, he came and worked with three of our orchestras for one of the days. And then he went through all of our middle schools as well before heading home to Chicago. Oh, that is so cool. So, super fun. Yeah. That, I mean, amazing opportunity and really, really awesome that you were able to bring him in and then to be able to share that experience across your program and at the middle school level. That's really cool because everybody feels connected to the commission, even if they're not performing it when they get that opportunity. Totally. And it's not lost on me. Like what an incredible opportunity that he was like, hey, I'm writing these free commissions. Would you like to be part of it? 
okay. yes, yes, I would. Yes. Um, but uh, we, because of that, then we're excited to bring him out. And he has, for those of you interested, he has a number of um, published arrangements that are all by historically underrepresented composers. The one that we had played at Midwest was Asar Taneha by Shikini Gonzaga. And then he also has a bunch of original compositions. Two of the middle school groups that he visited were playing Warrior of the River, which you can find on Pepper. Very cool. Is that Kaleidoscope concert that you do, is that in your theater space? It is in our theater space. And what happens is the wind ensemble is staged, uh, it stays on stage. And then everyone else is sort of around the uh, auditorium right. itself. So the idea is that the audience member turns to see this side, then that side, and it's like a kaleidoscope of music. Realistically, it's a lot of logistics. Um, my colleague Todd Summers really took um, takes the hit on on prepping all of the logistics there. But he um, had uh, some of it is also that we had all of our orchestras play memorized because having that many music stands in the hall makes it a lot harder to be able to it takes up double the amount of rows. So that's the reason why we did all these memory checks early in the year. Super cool. And uh, it, I'm excited to see that you brought your cello straps back from uh, your Midwest. Yeah, for those of you unfamiliar, <laughs> we are really into our cello straps that we bought for Midwest last year. I can, anyone who's interested, get in contact. I will let you, I will let you borrow I'm them. glad they're getting some bang for the buck. <laughs> they're not a one show and done. So that, that's pretty cool. Oh no, they are, they were not cheap. They are expensive. <laughs> so we are going to, we're going to use them they until the day done. They will be marching exactly at every six. single performance <laughs> for the next five years. <laughs> I know, I'm starting a strolling strings group because oh of it. Gosh. Just kidding. And we've got a fall concert next week. All of our ensembles are performing. Things are sounding good. We had our last symphony orchestra rehearsal this past weekend and it sounds, sounds really great. Awesome. All right, let's set the stage for our conversation for today. On our last episode, we share some progress updates on all of our various classes as we made our way through the first quarter of the year. Today, we'll be discussing some of the ways that we help to build ensemble skills and awareness in our ensemble to create a uniform sound. We've talked over many episodes about how to build the individual skills that students need to be successful on their instruments. But as we know, as educators, those individual skills are very different than the needs of playing in a large group. And without awareness of how to play in an ensemble, a group can sound just like a mob of musicians that are all shouting to be heard, rather than a group that agrees to create one thing of beauty through the contributions of everyone making it. While the goal of this is, of course, to demonstrate this in the repertoire and eventual performance, today we're going to focus on how we use our fundamentals to build these skills to be transferred into their music making, eventually in their rep. We're going to start by talking about all of the things that make up what is a uniform sound. I will say at this point in my career, you know, I'm, I'm in year 15 now, I think a lot of these seem more obvious to me because I've been doing it for a while. But I will say at the beginning and in the middle and in the not so distant past, I don't think I really knew what to listen for as an ensemble member or even as a, as a teacher. So these are all things that maybe will be obvious to some of you as listeners, but if not, these are all things that the kids need to think about and have to be taught how to listen for and control. Things that can be true of creating an ensemble sound, matching note length, matching the style of a note within the length of that. Moving together rhythmically. Are they playing the right rhythm is one thing. Are they playing the right rhythm together is a very, very different thing. Matching the quality of tone and on string instruments that is unique to the instrument as well as to what string they're playing on. Matching the energy of their sound. I know in the band world, we talk a lot about tonal energy, not the app, but the actual energy of our sound and trying to create a match there. That's not necessarily volume. The volume can be a, a part of that. Matching tuning, that is probably an obvious thing, especially in the string world, because we're constantly thinking about intonation, but is that intonation in tune and is it truly matching the people to our left and to our right? 
all of these things are components of creating one thing that when many people play all at the same time, it does not sound like many. It just truly sounds like one. And that's a lot for the kids to keep track of. Yeah. No, I appreciate this whole list of things to be aware of, because I think as directors, of course, we're always thinking about like, hey, how do we like this doesn't sound right to me and why? And then so I think being able to identify these individual things is really helpful. And then while these are common between band and orchestra, I think the way we get to them in orchestra is going to look pretty different because of really because of the bow. The bow does like so much of what you're talking about mm -hmm. and having the same alignment of the bow within the whole section is going to make a big difference. Obviously, left hand also has a lot to do with it. Like shifting is going to affect tone quality if you're playing in third position or you're playing in first position. Those are all going to affect um, a couple things that come to mind. With note length and style, so much of what you're going to uh, need is really just bows placed exactly in the same spot, right? I know you were going to talk about this, but the one inch rule of just being within within an inch of where everyone else in your section is and how can you make sure that you are in the same placement of your bow as the people in front of you. At the beginning and middle school levels, I think often it's just traffic control to try to get everyone to go up and down at the same time mm -hmm. or at the at the correct times. And that's, I think, definitely part of it. But then as they become more advanced, getting them to make sure that they're actually starting the bow and placing it at exactly the right spot, right? You're going to get a completely different sound if you're playing a pickup. And a classic example is it says up bow on a pickup and you're going to see half of the group pick up their bow and go to the tip for that up bow pickup because it says up bow and we know up bow means tip, but up bow doesn't always mean tip. Up bow can mean frog if you're going to play a really quick up bow pickup. So I think like really breaking it down for your students and saying, oh, like uh, we want to make sure that we know right now this actually means go to the frog. And that often means writing in frog and making sure everyone can practice that exact movement again and again. And moving together rhythmically, I think everyone, the classic trope is that the orchestra kids can't play rhythmically together. And so often it's not at all because they don't conceptually or like mentally understand the rhythm. It's because the physical movement of the two hands and the backwards coordination of trying to move your hand up while your right hand goes down and doing all of that, that's actually what affects the rhythm, right? So then so much of moving together rhythmically, it becomes rehearsing like how much bow do I use? Where like the amount of speed that I'm using? So often a middle school kid is just using way too much bow and it's not that they don't understand the rhythm is da, 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 da. It's that because they use so much bow, the up the eighth note becomes da, Duh, duh, duh. And then so like rhythmically, it's just also bow control again. Um, tone quality and tonal energy, I think both of those things can be uh, attributed often to the left hand. That can be tone quality and tonal energy affected by both shifting and making sure we're, we're um, using a fingering that makes the most sense. It also affects string crossings and making sure that that again affects rhythm. And then also just um, vibrato, right? Vibrato can completely change the energy of, of both the, the tone and also the tuning. And so figuring out how can we use that to, uh, to our benefit as well. Any other thoughts, Pat? I think something that I am reflecting on that, again, is a difference between band and strings is how much so much of what you just shared is visual that mm. you can see almost all of that on their instruments. And that is, I think, a benefit as a teacher, but it's also a little overwhelming because there's so many different components visually to look at there. I mean, you, you talked about just in the bow alone of where they start and where they end and what lane they're playing in when they're making fingering choices, I will say as a developing string educator, it is frustrating how unspecific fingerings are in parts and how much is left up to the player. Mm -hmm. I know why that's true. And I know that those options are in some ways an opportunity, but I just wish it was more 
clear for me and for the students. So it didn't feel like we had to make so many choices, as well as honestly, for the kids to have to make those choices on the fly. I mean, I'm definitely feeling in the top group, there are many more things that I'm like, I, I'm just needing to do more homework for myself to get that together and also to activate my students to be able to say, can you help make some of these decisions and write them down so I can share them with the rest of the class? Because if we don't talk about those things, they are almost always going to do them very, very differently. So those are all decisions that need to be made and then executed and practiced to be the same. Yeah. And I think that's a really good call out. There is so much with the way that we receive string music, even string music that's been edited, that we're still supposed to just make like a whole bunch of guesses, or you're just supposed to know that it's supposed to be bowed in this way. And that I think is like a very gatekeepy elitist part of the string education, but it's, it's fingerings. It's also bowings, right? There's yes. so many assumptions that you should know how certain bowings work. And like I, at the, my highest high school level, like just give them the full freedom to bow things. But at, at not that level, the director needs to be able to give instruction on like, Hey, here's, here's what you should do and why. And I think that's very challenging. And the choices that kids are going to make on their own when you don't give them that instruction are what, what is going to cause an ununiform sound. Right. So I think like so much of what you're trying to prep them for is to, is to try to create a matched tone quality where they can move together. Yes. I think your call out also that it's visual is really important. I mean, none uh, highlighted the most during Zoom school where we're, some of us made ensemble videos. The videos that I had to edit, um, the band videos, they just like I, you could they could be playing anything. <laughs> if they were playing the clarinet, all. it's like you you could be doing nothing at all, and we would have no A idea. Free for all. I'm pretty sure I, so my colleagues actually just would screen record in Zoom of just kids playing, and they would put that to whatever music they wanted. Whereas for uh, my string videos, it was, it's truly, I mean, not only are you hoping that they learned the correct bowings at home, which whatever, um, you're also trying to match that. I literally yesterday spent the full day recording a symphony orchestra. We, we made a, a silly Halloween uh, music video and to get the strings to match with the music is uh, like six times more time consuming than the winds and breaths. Now uh, that's also because I'm just not lining it up at all. And I don't care if those shots line up, yeah, but it's okay. <laughs> But anyway, um, yeah, I do think that the the fact that it is very visual in the strings is both challenging and also can be used to your advantage, right? It's so easy to have first stand, turn around, look at the second stand, watch them play, help them judge. Are they playing it together? Turn and watch your stand partner, show them what your measure seven and eight looks like, then have them play yours and like, oh, which stand can be the most together? And like, you can try to figure out like, oh, can I watch, can I find the stand that has the bows that are moving exactly the same way? Yeah, I think what you're saying about the students being able to take advantage of that visual information is a huge benefit to the string classroom that's just different in band. In band, I have with trombones, which I think is the most visual in terms of their note movement, I, I will, will mm -hmm. do a lot of that, like just watch to see are their slides moving together. And it's so obvious to them when they are and they aren't. And for strings, that is, that's how we make their sound all of the time. So a big benefit. Well, we've already started to talk about some of the strategies of how we can go about making the kids aware and then trying to actually work toward a match. But in terms of material, I've mentioned up top that we're trying to focus around fundamentals. So any fundamental exercise works, obviously doing something on an open string that is just rhythmic to play four quarter note bows, to play one long down bow for four counts and one long up bow for four counts. Those are simple things. Taking a uniform melody, and it could be a melody that's from the repertoire, you know, there's still a way to do that fundamentally, or it could just be a simple melody of any kind that is built with through a scale. 
And then of course, taking something that's maybe inspired by the rep or that is kind of like central to a style of the rep or just a basic rhythm, like a Suzuki style rhythm. I talk about Mississippi stop top all the time, doing those things on open strings. This is all the kind of material that I'm thinking about using as we try to build these skills. Some of those things can be found through our method books. So I think the method books are a good focus there, but I like to do a lot of this stuff where the kids aren't reading something. They're doing something that mm -hmm. is, and I do that in, in the band world too. Um, when I teach them an example like Remington Descend or Ascent, which most band educators will be familiar with, we read that at some point. That's right. Okay, That's sorry. Right. That was unnecessary. I was going to say, is that your, like, sixth, your sixth period background track is the uh, freshman yep, band yep, yep. doing that? Fifth, sixth, and seventh period, there baby. You go. <laughs> doing that where the kids aren't having to have a visual stimulus in front of them from a notation standpoint, and they can mm -hmm. just use their ears and their eyes to be aware around them. I think that's really, really actually critical to building this skill because the notation really gets in the way. You are naming so many key things here. Number one, the like string playing itself causes immediate cognitive overload. There's so much to think about. There's way too much to think about. And the visual stimulus of the music is almost a cop out because you look at it and you're like, I did the thing that it says, mm -hmm. but it's so easy to do the thing that it says incorrectly or not in the right place or potentially on the wrong string or using the wrong rhythm. And like, it, it looks like it's correct, but it actually is not accurate in practice. So I love this idea of lessening anything in the cognitive load, taking away the music, um, doing open string rhythm um, from something that you're working on, taking away one of those elements, even just using one of the hands at a time, right? So like isolating just the right hand, let's make sure that our bow use is correct. Let's then make sure that we can put that on just open string, still thinking about taking away the left hand. I think all of that is so important. And I think what we're sort of dancing around here is that we have, I'm sure everyone who's listening to this has seen a student who is a very confident instrumentalist, right? A confident string player in their own solo playing and so often that really great solo player is a terrible ensemble player because they are not used to looking up checking to make sure they're in the same part of the bow making sure that like their rhythm is actually steady and not being accommodated for their string crossings often um what ensemble playing with strings is is that much more difficult than i think really with band partially also because i think the um number of players who have taken private lessons from a younger age are are more abundant in string playing and therefore come in with like ideas of how um, they they might be really solid players but actually have a bad sense of group rhythm etc it's a little bit of a diatribe but i do think like what we're naming is that like if you are not able to be aware of your surroundings be aware of how you're matching with your stand partner and your section leaders then there there's actually there's not group playing happening it's just what you said chaos of people playing in the same room yeah I use that image of there's a difference between a mob that is all chanting the same thing outside of a building <laughs> and a group of people that have agreed to make one thing all exactly the same together. And, and, and that not, it's not a political statement there, but, but that, that to me is sometimes when I hear groups play and when I say groups, I mean like my own students, I sometimes hear them with a lot of enthusiasm, just sound like they're all shouting their parts. And that is not ensemble yeah. music making. That is, I, I sometimes call it, it's like, that's orchestra karaoke. Like you can all shout at the top of your lungs oh, and have I a great time. Oh, I love these call outs. Yeah. yeah, that's good. And I think kids should, mine is just like, oh, you sound like it's sawing wooden boxes all together. Um, but <laughs> you've got to, <laughs> I, I think helping kids understand like, oh, 
what is the unified sound? What like how does it sound when we actually all place our bows at the same time in the same lane at the same speed using exactly the same fingering mm -hmm. um, or a fingering that that coordinates? And like if we can do that, and then like even if it's one note, right? And like celebrate that and help them feel like oh wow, this is what we're aiming for all of the time. Yes. And then of course, like once we're in a tricky sixteenth note section with a lot of string crossings, like it's not they're they're not gonna prioritize thinking about the group, but helping them know that that's the overall goal I think is useful. Yeah. And I think if the kids can't do that stuff on a simple, and I don't mean easy when I say simple, I just mean simple, a simple, be it open string or simple finger, they just can't do that in the rep. It does. It doesn't magically happen otherwise w without it just being, I don't know, in my opinion, I don't like to say this term, bad teaching, which is ultimately teaching to the test in a way that does not actually give them skills that they can use as musicians. So I think with the amount of repertoire that the kids play over the, the year, you're just getting more bang for your buck by teaching them how to do that thing on a fundamental level and then just letting them trans and just constantly giving them awareness reminders through the repertoire. Of course, some of this stuff does need to be addressed really specifically in the rep, but I think all this stuff pays dividends over the course of a student's career by giving them the skills. You're teaching them to fish. Yeah. And teaching to the test in this case is literally being like, it's first finger, then third finger. Yes, the rhythm yes. is ta, 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 ta. And like they can technically do it correct and not have a, a, at all sounded like they're in an ensemble. Correct. And I think a lot of um, string playing, it really, I was going to say at the beginning level, but really at the high school level, becomes a lot of kids playing their instruments in the same room. Yep, and yep. I think everything you're naming is sort of moving from being that to being a true ensemble. What are some uh, ways that you're asking kids to try to match? Yeah, well, I think through some of the material that we've just discussed, what I like to do is, well, of course, approach that all together. And then the easiest way to get them to match is to identify somebody that they want to match. So it's trying to find a model somewhere in the room. I think on the smallest level, that's an individual match. And it could be obviously going through the entire class takes a lot of time. I do use that time. I do I do go through the entire class on something that is a four to eight count. Obviously my assessments I've talked about before are like that, but I don't think you can do that every time because it's just time consuming and also overwhelming. The kids get lost. So I think picking a small group and then asking individuals to play within that small group and then asking the entire group to say, who was your favorite sound and why? And giving them an opportunity to do that because a lot of times the kids don't know why it should be their favorite sound. Mm -hmm. And so for some of them, that process is like, I, I don't know, they all sounded pretty close. Or I know that one played the wrong rhythm, but the rest of them were good. Like, that's not the point. The point is who did it the best? Why did they do it the best? And then once you find that one person, as the teacher, I usually will try and find like, who do I think was the closest to that person there? And just get the two of them to play. And there is something, Matt, there is a light bulb that goes off that you were just talking about for the kids to actually hear two people sound like one. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, the kids are a little bit like, that was kind of magical in a way that I didn't expect it to be. And once you can get those two, those two can add a third and add a fourth. And you start to build this little model. And of course you can't do that individually, but you can say, all right, here's a group of four. This is this little pearl that we've just created. Let's now bring in all of the cellos and basses with this group of four. And let's see if all the cellos and basses can match the group of four. Yeah. Let's have all the violins see if they can match this group of four. How well did it hand, hold? And of course, all of that is going to get worse when you add more people in because there's more people. But that gets blown out to the rest of the group. So that's kind of building from the very, very individual out to the group.
No, I love that. And actually what you just described is actually one way that I also work on tuning with students. Mm -hmm. Like we're getting two people to match exactly the same and the magic of, wow, these truly sound like one person and trying to get like, oh, our goal is to have our section sound like one person and have them really slow down and identify like, oh, at this point, I really feel like it matched. And when we added this, I didn't feel like it matched. And like for them to be able to name exactly what it is, I think makes a big difference. I think the, uh, you've talked about in the past, uh, how you use stand partners for many things, but I think also just having them go by stands and just having two people play at once and mm -hmm. saying, what was a pair that you thought did great is another version of that. That is just a different approach. Yes. So if you're not hearing the kids play in pairs, it's, it's honestly more efficient. You're just hearing two at a time. Yeah. And you still get a lot of the same information. You know, you're going to have some pairs where you have you're going to have one kid that sounds really awesome and one kid that sounds less awesome. Yep. But when you find two that sound most close, that's the point of that thing. But I actually also love this idea of like when you have them play in pairs and then they realize that their pair does not sound at all unified, it gives them a chance to know that too. doesn't mean I'm calling it out and saying like, wow, that was the worst one. But even just the experience of them playing it and hearing that it didn't sound unified, I think is a lot of information for them. Yeah, I could talk for a long time about how what kids think they sound like and then when they hear themselves, what they <laughs> actually sound like. And I think, yeah. yeah, like you said, that's not a call out. It's just information for them because what a sad thing for them to not realize that that was what is happening <laughs> and then to not be able to fix it. They all want to sound good. The, the point is to show them what they sound like. Totally. Yeah. Every kid of course wants to sound good. And I think often um, that's also where recording can be really useful, right? I think like um, you can, you can record your ensemble. Like sometimes I'll record just the second violin section playing these eight bars and then I'll play it back for them. Cause often the experience when they are playing doesn't immediately reflect what what's actually what's what they think is happening and i will often do that with like literally just a voice memo on my phone and immediately play it back for them yep. through our speaker system so that they can immediately get that feedback um i'll do that with the whole ensemble too of like hey let's just play this introduction for 16 bars and then after we'll listen to it back and like like what parts of the uniform sound are not uh speaking like what 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 is sticking out yeah i think audio recording is super valuable for that and i think what you're talking about which is the immediacy of the record and play is really, really impactful for the kids. And it's very easy with technology these days. I also will often take video for them in little snippets. And sometimes I plan that out, like we're going to record today. And, you know, on Fridays, I tend yeah. to do recordings as we get towards concerts. And I always will do one video recording day. I actually do that in all the classes, not just not just the string classes. I love that. But wow, is that a lot of information for them. And, and that is also another opportunity for the kids who just aren't aware to be able to see that like, why am I not moving with the rest of the group? I thought I was moving. They, they don't see or hear that until they see it on video. Because of the cognitive overload of playing. Yep. Like there's so much to think about. Yep. They think they're playing the right bow and then they don't realize until they watch the video that they're not. I actually, I used to tell my middle school kids like, oh, when we watch the concert video, you don't want to be the one bow salmon swimming the wrong yes. way. But actually, if you're regularly recording video in class, it gives them a chance to like look at it and uh, fix it. Yeah, and, and, and then like you said, with voice memos, I will just take my phone out and say, we're going to video that and then I'll just airdrop it to my computer and put it up on the screen for them to watch. So you can do that in real time totally. pretty quickly. It doesn't have to be like a big, sometimes recording feels like a, today's a big recording day and it doesn't need to be that way at all. Yeah.
And actually, I mean, as Pat and I are also speaking from the privilege of being tech natives and like, this doesn't sound scary at all. I realize that for some people that might be a little intimidating, but yes, I get that. Um, another, the video thing is reminding me also a thing I've done in the past is I've, I've told my students, Hey, like in a professional ensemble, the string, the string players are all always going to be within that one inch of each other in their mm -hmm. bow. And so sometimes we'll pull up a video of a professional symphony or a semi-professional symphony, and I'll have them like like look like look at the bows and your goal is to try to find anyone who's not within that one inch rule like and so we're just trying to catch like oh like is there anyone really and like of course there's gonna be a time where like someone's slightly off and they're like oh <laughs> and the, but the, the point of that is more just like oh well how do you think that affected the sound like what do you think happens when that happens what does ours look like when we're all cattywampus all over the place etc on the one inch rule, because I think that was a really powerful light bulb. I heard that from that originally from Richard Meyer when he came to work with our students in my first year when we had a commission from him. And I think it's really powerful for the kids. I think something I, I often am doing is before we start something, it's I often am saying bow in the string. And then is it where you want it to be? And then you see all the kids look up in front of them to try and find where it is and they adjust. So that's just a good like before they start their sound, they should be in the right place because they're not playing. Mm -hmm. But can I ask? That's much easier on violin and viola than it is on cello. Yep. Do you ever, I don't know, cellists are always like, I can't see around this kid's knees to yeah, find where their bow is. Fair. I don't know. Do, do you have any thoughts on that? I don't have a great strategy for this. I think about this all the time. Cellos and basses. I, I honestly even tell cellos and basses, like, it matters a lot that you're in the same part of the bow, but it's really extra obvious with the violins where the audience can really see it. <laughs> wink, wink. Like, like, it matters for sure. And we want a unified sound, but it is harder for them to yeah. see. I don't I don't have a great strategy of, of how to make that better. At least for basses, they're often just like looking down the yeah, line. It's a little easier. easier. But for the cellos, it's, it's really genuinely quite challenging yeah. to figure that out. Um, um, if anything, like if you're like on the inside and can see the angle of like how much, how far out the elbow of the first chair player is, I don't know. There's not a great mm -hmm. way, to be mm -hmm. honest. I talked about finding those models on an individual level or using the stand partners and pairs. An obvious way to do that is just going by section. You know, let's hear the first, let's hear the seconds, the viols, the cellos and the basses. And who do you think did the best job? That who do you think did the best job question is, especially for young students, it's one you really have to coach them on because their initial response is often, I did the best job or my friends in that section and they did the best job. And mm -hmm. that usually happens in the beginning. And then you kind of help them to find out what best is. And I usually find it, it, it does get better after that. They don't just pick, they don't pick their buddy. They do try and pick yeah. the thing. But that's good teaching, right? It's like, it's like really guiding them to like what specifically you're listening for. If they said whatever their answer is, then you ask them why. And like, yes. they have to be able to explain what the reason exactly. is. And that helps a lot. Exactly. I think just splitting the full ensemble into smaller ensembles by random groups of we're going to number off one to four. Let's hear all the ones. Let's hear all the twos and all the threes and all the fours. And that's of course, cross the sections. That is really powerful and very, very obvious for the kids. And once you find a group you like, you say, okay, the twos are our model. Let's hear the twos and the ones. Let's hear the twos and the threes. Let's hear the twos and the fours. Which of those match the best? And then you take them and then you say, all right, let's hear the twos and the fours. And then immediately after them, let's hear the ones and the threes. And let's just compare the two. And the goal is ones and threes, you got to match what the twos and the fours did. And then finally, you take the whole group and you put it on top of each other and you try and make it all perfectly matched. That's just like a fast forward version yeah, of a lesson of how that works. Yeah, perfect. And then the last thing I'll share on this is I love to do A's and B's. It's another version of the the one, two, three, four, just splitting the group. And it's often stand partners. Sometimes I'll say inner and outer, but I like the kids to feel like they can mix up what that group is. So I say A's and B's, figure it out. 
A's are going to watch the B's and B's are going to watch the A's. And then you're getting some, some listening and trying to find the match, but you're also getting an opportunity for the kids to share feedback on what they're seeing. Because as we've talked to many times, it's very hard to know what you look like when you're playing a string instrument. So having somebody else do that, I don't do this that often, but when I've done it, it's really effective. I, I don't do it because it's a little bit of a logistical nightmare is having the kids stand and face each other and play or having the cellos Mm. adjust their chairs and face each other and play and having stand partners play at each other so that they can play while they're watching their neighbor on something. I think what you just described is something that I'm doing literally in every single class period at some point, like everyone is going to play. I get sick of A's and B's. And so in at the middle school level, it was like peanut butter and jelly cookies and milk. And then the idea being that they can each be, they just choose one is one and then they can switch. So it's not always the same person playing first at the high school level. I try to add in a little component of SEL of like, Hey, who has the most tests this week? Like, and then it's always also like a, whoever has the Love most it. test plays first. Yeah. And it's like a check-in also, but the idea just being like, Oh, we are all going to get to hear our stand partner and have an opportunity to have that feedback. I think that is a daily practice that I think is key to really any orchestra mm -hmm. classroom, in my mm -hmm. opinion. And so fun and so engaging. And all of the students are involved in that learning process there. Really, they're at the center of what we're doing, which is way more fun for them and more uh, valuable and a lot less work for us. For sure. Well, this has been a great discussion about something that I just I just love teaching this part of the class. I know that the kids don't sign up. I say this in band. The kids don't sign up to play concert F. That's not why they showed up in the room. But the reason they sound good is because they sound really great on a concert F. And that is how I feel about this in the string world is they don't show up to play Mississippi stop stop on their open D string. And if we do that a lot in versions of that, they they sound really, really great on all the other stuff. I appreciate you saying that. And honestly, I think this is where you really shine as a teacher. Like this is your your bread and butter. And like, I think you do a great job of making this happen. And I love how thoughtful you are about it. I learned from hearing you talk about this. Well, today. thank you, Tiffany. <laughs> I always learn from both of our conversations. But um, yeah, I, I enjoy this part. It's, <laughs> it feels like we're in the sandbox when we do this kind of stuff, which I like that part. Well, let's move to our last segment, which is our episode goals. Every single episode, we set a new goal and we check in on our previous goal. My previous goal was to have a successful fall concert. And as I mentioned at the very, very top in our check-ins, I was really, really excited about the fall concert. Always things to learn from, but it felt great to be with the kids. They sounded really, really wonderful. And I think they were really proud of the work they did. So lots of successes. My new goal as we are into second quarter is I am just seeing some gaps opening up between 90% of my classes and then another 10% of my classes. And it's feeling harder to help those kids in the, the, the full class. So I'm trying to find these kids that are falling through the cracks. And I'm, what I'm trying to figure out are what are strategies that I can use to help them immediately? Because realistically, I will not have the time to meet with all of the kids I want to one-on-one. -on -one. So trying to find some pairings, um, I just was able to, excited that I was able to get some funding for a coach to come in who we've had in the past to work with some of our upper strings. And I'm hopeful to get somebody for lower strings because that will also be really, really beneficial. But just trying to help those kids because I know the further we get towards December, they're going to start to feel discouraged. And that is the last thing I want. I want them to feel like they are successful and I want to help them get there. So that's my new goal. Sounds good. 
my old goal was to continue to get to know individual players and continue to build those one-on-one -on -one relationships. And I think I have been doing that. It's obviously ongoing, but I uh, just this week, I feel like as everyone's getting more and more stressed about grades and well, yeah, grades. Um, I feel like I've been doing pre-rehearsal, just kind of like walk through the room of kids who are there to be like, hey, how was senior night for volleyball? Like, hey, um, I saw that you uh, were out for a entrance exam for college. Like, how was that? What was it about? Oh, you're applying to school in the UK. That's very cool. Like, just like trying to like talk to kids about their one-on-one -on -one life, even if it's a 30 second conversation, right? Like that connection, I think changes changes the game on how connected they feel to you and their classroom. I would just add on to that. I mentioned in the last episode, I'm on the PVIS committee and uh, most of the committee went to a conference last week. I did not attend, unfortunately, cool. but when they came back, they were sharing a lot of things, including the incredible value of standing at your door when the kids walk in and out and just having yes. this moment to just see every kid before they're in a big group. But literally, I mean, like there's parts of it where like I literally see a kid and I'm like, oh, looking at you, you are six inches taller than when I last truly looked at you. And that probably affects a lot of what's going on in your life right now, too. <laughs> you know, like I think there's like literally things that you can see about them that is helpful. <laughs> and a reminder that like we literally spent this episode talking about uniform sound, how we can remove any amount of individuality from the sound. <laughs> and I think like it's I always tell kids like as a person, I cannot wait for you to grow to be your full individual self when we're in here. <laughs> the goal is for you to be as uniform with everyone as possible. Yeah, I talk about that a lot. I talk about the you are beautifully different in the best way possible. And what is amazing about what we do is all of those differences will create one thing that is the same. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I think it's a funny call out for kids to like just look at up front too. Um, my new goal, we've got a fall concert this week on Thursday, and I'm just looking forward to enjoying that whole experience. I think kids are really well prepared. We've got uh, that exciting premiere and some other really fun stuff that's happening. We do an aforementioned uh, Halloween music video that is just a fun premiere for kids. And I am excited to go through that whole process, including reflection. I think often after the fall concert, especially, we're moving on really quick into December content. And so I just want to make sure that I do the full reflection on like, hey, how is this experience, especially with this composer meeting and the premiere? And like, how is this experience for you playing on stage for the first time for our freshmen, etc. And just want to make sure I fully follow through on that. I often am just too quick to move on. Yes, I love that you're thinking about closing that loop of the, the whole process being through the performance and then looking back. That's great. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening to this episode. If you want to reach out to us with questions, comments, feedback, or ideas, shoot us an email at bandmeetsstrings at gmail.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at bandmeetsstrings. Please subscribe on whichever platform you use to play podcasts and consider spreading the word to anyone you think might be interested. We're hoping to spread this network of shared learning as wide as we can in the string education community. Tiffany, I hope you enjoy your weekend. Thank you. You too. We'll see you next time. Take care.